Hello? Hey, it's a four-way. Is everybody on? Yeah, I'm here. What's up? Present. Oh my god, you're never gonna believe what I just heard. Bitch, we need to be in person for this one. I'm on my way. I'll grab the champagne. Perfect. See you guys in ten. Welcome back, toppers. I hate how fast this month is going. Where is the time gone? I have not been to enough spooky places yet. I just, uh, it flies. It really does. I hate it. I just wish it was October all year round. I know it's only, you know it's only the 18th, but still, that's, uh, <laughs> it's too, too far, too far gone. Anyway, today, as you know, if you listened to last week's episode, you are well aware that we will be talking about the serial killer who inspired, well, one of the serial killers who inspired the film Silence of the Lambs. Were you able to guess who I was going to talk about? Well, probably, because uh, there's not many choices. If you Google it, I don't know what I'm saying. It's probably not who you thought it would be. And that is because many people inspired Silence of the Lambs, which is sick that that many people can inspire a movie like that. Hello, we need to all, as a collective society, get our shit together. This should not be happening. Anyway, today we will be, as I said, discussing the serial killer that inspired the movie Silence of the Lambs. Now, it is stated that Silence of the Lambs was inspired by up to six different serial killers, including the notorious Ed Gain. Is it Gain or Gein? I literally don't know. I, I know exactly who he is. <laughs> And we all know who he is. But is it Ed Gein? Gein? Oh my freaking god, I don't know. But he's not the one we're talking about today. And it's also, I just went off on a rant and I lost where my sentence started. So let's just like begin the sentence again. So the movie is inspired by up to six people. Those including Notorious Ed Gein and Ted Bundy. However, I'll be focusing on a different killer who inspired the film by the name of Gary Heidnick. I did not pick Ed Gein because we all know who he is. I'm pretty sure we all know who he is, so I wanted to do someone, I don't want to say new and fresh because that's a horrible way to describe a serial killer, but I just didn't pick him because we all know who he is. That's also the reason I did not pick Ted Bundy. I'm kind of over Ted Bundy. Like, there have been so many movies about him. We all know who he is. It's just... It's boring at this point. So we picked Gary. Oh, <laughs> uh, because why not? You know, it's, I can do whatever I want. Back to Gary. When I was doing research about him, I was shocked that he did his crimes in Philly because that's so close to me. I don't. Even, I didn't even know this story. And the fact that it was like not in my neighborhood because I'm not, th- I'm not that close to Philly, but I'm like, I'm close enough where, um, whatever. You know what I mean? I'm not telling you where I live. Anyway, let's talk about the horror film first that ins- that was inspired by Gary and many others before we get into his life and descent, you could call it. I don't know. Well, anyway, the film, I'm all over the place. I'm very scatterbrained today, so j- I'm, I'm apologizing in advance. The film was released on Valentine's Day of 1991. Why? Don't know. Who picked that date? A sicko. Like, they were just like, yeah, let's really Silence of the Lambs on Valentine's. I would go see it. That sounds like a perfect Valentine's Day activity to me, but I'm also not normal. Okay. I'm sure if you're listening to this episode, you are somewhat into true crime, I would hope, and like horror movies and all that stuff. So I'm not going to go over the whole plot of the movie because we would be here for freaking ever. So let's just jump into the character referred to as Buffalo Bill from the film. What was his goal in the film and how was his character influenced by the real life serial killers? We know. The main goal of Buffalo Bill was to transform into a woman. 
The conflict to overcome was the difficulties faced while pursuing a gender reassignment procedure. Due to mental health issues, Buffalo Bill can't quite get the proper medical assistance that he desires. Incidentally, he kills women as a coping mechanism in order to quite literally wear the skin of his female victims. For dramatic purposes, the character was inspired by a variety of serial killers. The most obvious influence is Ted Bundy, who, like Buffalo Bill, lured female victims into his vehicle. The additional inspirations for Buffalo Bill's character model were several killers, including Ed Gein and Jerry Burdose. Ed is notorious for making skin suits out of his victims, while Jerry is known for wearing the clothes of his female victims. Both men share personality traits with Buffalo Bill. Serial killers like Edmund Kemper and Gary Ridgway have also been linked to Buffalo Bill, primarily due to emotional trauma that stems from childhood experiences and in return affect their view of the world. Buffalo Bill's torture methods connect to those of Gary Hynek, a Philadelphia native who lured women to his residence in the 80s and subsequently kept them in a hole. In The Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill kidnaps Catherine Martin, the daughter of a U.S. senator, and keeps her in a hole within his home. But whereas Heidnick wanted to psychologically control his victims, Buffalo Bill goes a step further by terrorizing his victims and then physically wearing their skin. What a beautiful story. <laughs> oh, Jesus. How are there people in this world that could actually do that? I, I don't know. It's beyond me. But unfortunately, there are. So that was, uh, that was a lot, wasn't it? I'll let that all sink in for a moment. Uh, I'll let you fully grasp what I just said because it's, oh, uh, it's something. The story of Gary Hardnick begins November 22nd, 1943 in East Lake, Ohio with his unfortunate birth. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's true. <laughs> if you guys are keeping track, that makes old Gary a Sagittarius, which I'm not shocked. Sagittarius's are a little cry-cry, you know what I mean? His mother, Ellen, and father, Michael, raised him and his younger brother, Terry, together in the suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, until their divorce in 1946. The brothers were then raised by their mother for four years until being placed to live with their father and his new wife. Heidnick claimed... It was at this time that he began to be emotionally abused by his father. He suffered from a lifelong problem of bedwetting and claimed his father would humiliate him by forcing him to hang his stained sheets from his bedroom window in full view of the neighbors. Michael denies he ever abused his son, Gary. Obviously, like, if he actually did do it, he's not going to be like, yeah, I did that. I'm like, come on. His life at school did not play out much better for Gary. He refused to make eye contact with anyone and not interact with the other students. There was one instance when a new female student asked Gary if he had gotten the homework done yet and he yelled at her and told her she was not worthy to talk to him. Gary was also teased about his oddly shaped head, which him and his brother claim was from Gary falling out of a tree. Despite the bullying and lack of social skills, Gary did very well academically and tested with an IQ of 148, which, to be honest, I have no clue what that means. I assume it's good by the way they worded it. I don't know. It's like when the doctor tells you what your blood pressure is and you're just like, okay, like, I don't know what any of that stuff means. So let's just assume it's good. <laughs> I don't know. Eventually, at 17, he dropped out of school to join the U.S. Army. Gary served in the Army for 13 months. During basic training, his drill sergeant graded him as excellent. He applied for several specialist positions, including military police, but was rejected. Instead, he was sent to San Antonio, Texas to be trained as a medic and did very well. 
Not long after that, however, he was sent to the 46th Army Surgical Hospital in Landstuhl, West Germany. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong because I can barely pronounce English words, let alone German places. So... I'm trying my best. Within weeks of the move, he earned his GED. In August of 1962, he started to complain of severe headaches, dizziness, blurred vision, and nausea. A neurologist in the hospital diagnosed Gary with gastroenteritis. Gastroenteritis. Oh, God. <laughs> gastroenteritis? I don't know. I don't know something, something with the stomach, and noted that he also displayed symptoms of mental illness, which he prescribed trifluoparazine. Trifluoparazine. I could literally never be a doctor because I cannot pronounce these words. Like, thank God doctors are smart people because why would they make medicines and medical diagnosis such hard words? Jesus. Anyway, in October of 1962, he was transferred to a military hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder and consequently honorably discharged from the military. Shortly after his discharge, Gary became a licensed practical nurse and enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania only to drop out one semester later. I felt that in my soul. I felt that. He worked at a Veterans Administration hospital in Coastsville but was fired for poor attendance and rude behavior toward patients. From August 1962 until his arrest in March of 87, he spent time in and out of psychiatric hospitals and attempted suicide at least 13 times. In 1970, his mother, Ellen, who had been diagnosed with bone cancer and was suffering the effects of alcoholism, committed suicide by drinking mercuric chloride. His brother Terry also spent time in mental institutions and attempted suicide multiple times. People, that's a prime example that mental illness can run in families and you need to get it treated and seek professional help. Yes, I'm talking to you. Seek professional help if you need it. In October of 1971, Gary incorporated a church called the United Church of the Ministries of God, initially with only five followers. In 1975, he opened an account under the church's name with Merrill Lynch with an initial deposit of $1,500. Eventually, Gary amassed over half a million dollars, which at that time was equivalent to about $1.2 million dollars in 2010. By 1986, the United Church of the Ministries of God was thriving and wealthy. Gary used a matrimonial service to meet his future wife, who he talked to by mail for two years before proposing to her. Betty Disto arrived from the Philippines in September of 1985 and married Gary in Maryland on October 3, 1985. The marriage quickly went downhill after she found him in bed with three other women. Throughout their short-lived marriage, Gary would force his wife to watch while he had sex with other women. Disto also accused him of repeatedly raping and assaulting her. With the help of the Filipino community in Philly, she was able to leave Gary in January of 1986. Gary was shocked in 1987 when Betty requested child support payments to learn that she became pregnant during their short marriage. On September 15, 1986, Disto gave birth to a son she named Jesse John Disto. What a great name, Jesse. <laughs> uh. Gary also had a child with Gail Lincow, Lincow, I think, named Gary Jr. 
not a great name, who was placed in foster care soon after his birth. Gary had a third child with another woman named Anjanette, or Anjanet, Anjanet? I'm so sorry. Oh my God, what's her name? Anjanay. I'm gonna say Anjanay, but I I swear to God, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Last name Davidson, who was illiterate and mentally disabled. Their daughter Maxine Davidson was born on March 16th, 1978, and immediately placed in foster care. Soon after Maxine's birth, Gary was arrested for the kidnapping and rape of Anjanay's sister Alberta, who had been living in an institution for the mentally disabled in Penn Township. So now that you heard all about his life and his sick actions let's cover the timeline of his crimes up until his arrest we already have basically learned how much of a sicko he is but let's hear even more about him being a sicko yay are you excited because i'm not 1976 was the year he was first charged legally Gary was charged with aggravated assault and carrying an unlicensed pistol after shooting the tenant of a house he offered for rent, grazing the man's face. Face. God, I'd rather get shot in the arm than the face. I wouldn't get want to get shot anywhere, but, you know. In 1978, Gary signed out Alberta, the sister of his then-girlfriend, Anjanae. I, I'm so sorry. I think I'm pronouncing that name wrong. Davidson, from a mental institution on day leave and proceeded to imprison her in a locked storage room in his basement. After she was found and returned to the hospital, examination revealed that she had been raped and sodomized and contracted gonorrhea. Gary was arrested and charged with kidnapping, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and interfering with the custody of a committed person. The original sentence was overturned on appeal and Gary spent three years of his incarceration in mental institutions before being released in April 1983 under the supervision of a state-sanctioned mental health program. After his wife Betty left him in 1986, Gary was arrested again and charged with assault, indecent assault, spousal rape, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. On November 25, 1986, Heineck abducted a woman named Josefina Rivera. By January 1987, he had kidnapped another four women whom he held captive in a pit in his basement of his house on 3520 North Marshall Street in northern Philadelphia. The captives, who were all black women, were raped, beaten, and tortured. One of the women, Sandra Lindsay, died of a combination of starvation, torture, and an untreated fever. Heidnick dismembered her body but had problems dealing with the arms and legs, so he put them in the freezer labeled dog food. He cooked her ribs in an oven and boiled her head in a pot on the stove. Police officers came to his house after his neighbors complained that a bad odor was emanating from his residence, but then left the premise after Heidnick explained, I'm cooking a roast. I fell asleep and it burnt. (sighs) Police officers? Have you? I don't even eat meat and I would know that that smell was probably not a burnt roast, people. People, do better. Several sources state that he ground up the flesh of Lindsay, mixed it with dog food, and fed it to his other victims. His defense attorney, Chuck Peruto, said that upon examination of tools in his kitchen, they found no evidence of this. Peruto said that he made up the story to support the insanity defense. The defense attorney said that Heineck started the rumor of cannibalism in public and that, in fact, there was no evidence of anyone eating human flesh thank fucking god no 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 no. 
Heidnik used electric shock as a form of torture. At one point, he forced three of his captives bound in chains into a pit. Heidnik ordered Rivera and other women to fill the hole up with water and then forced Rivera to help him apply electric current from a stripped extension cord to the women's chains. Deborah Dudley was electrocuted to death and Heinick disposed of her body in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. On January 18, 1987, Heinick abducted Jacqueline Askins. The youngest of the six victims, Askins was only 18 years old at the time of her abduction. On May 5th, 2018, a special report titled Gary Heidnick's House of Horrors 30 Years Later was aired and featured an interview in which Askins recounted that Heinick wrapped duct tape around the mouths of the victims and stabbed them in their ears with a screwdriver. Oh my god, I can feel it. Ooh. On March 23, 1987, Heinick and Rivera abducted Agnes Adams the next day. Rivera convinced Heinick to let her go temporarily so she could visit her family. He drove her to a gas station and said that he would wait for her there. She walked a block away and called 911. The responding officers noted chafing from chains on her leg, went to the gas station, and arrested Heinick. His reported best friend, who went by Tony Brown, was also arrested. Brown was released on $50,000 bail and an agreement that he would testify against Heinick. In part, Brown admitted that he had witnessed Lindsay's death in the basement, and he also admitted that he had witnessed Heinick's dismemberment of her body. Shortly after his arrest in April of 1987, Heinick attempted to hang himself in his jail cell. Why? Uh-uh. How could you? No. Listen, I'm a ride or die for my friends, but if I ever witness that, first of all, I wouldn't witness it. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I would try to stop it. I'd probably get, end up getting killed myself because I like to think I'm tough, but I don't really think I'm tough. But like who, oh my God, how do people find that? Like, I will never understand that. Like serial killers or even just one time killers, killers who can find someone who share that type, like, oh my God, share that interest. I don't get it. How do you find each other? No. <sighs> At Heidnick's arraignment, he claimed that the women were already in the house when he moved in. That's the stupidest goddamn thing I've ever heard. Yeah, okay, Gary. They were just, they were chilling in the basement. And the real, real estate agent didn't see them down there. Like, come on. Heidnick was defended by A. Charles Peruto Jr., who attempted to prove that Heidnick was legally insane. Heidnick's insanity was successfully rebuted by the prosecution led by Charles F. Gallagher. The third. The fact that he successfully amassed approximately $550,000 through his brokerage account was used to prove that he was an astute investor and therefore not insane. Testimony, which was given by his Merrill Lynch financial advisor, Robert Kirkpatrick, was also used to prove Heidnick's mental competence. Kirkpatrick called Heidnick an astute investor who knew exactly what he was doing. Convicted of two counts of first-degree murder on July 1st, 1988, Heinick was sentenced to death and incarcerated at the State Correctional Institution at Pittsburgh. In January 1989, he attempted suicide with an overdose of prescribed thorazine. Thorazine? Thorazine. In 1997, Heidnick's daughter Maxine Davidson White and his ex-wife Betty Heidnick filed a lawsuit in federal court in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania in which they requested a stay of execution on the basis that Heidnick was not competent enough to be executed. After two years of legal proceedings in various courts on July 3, 1999, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania issued its final ruling clearing the way for Heidnick's execution. Heidnick was executed 
executed by lethal injection on July 6, 1999 at the State Correctional Institution Rockview in Belafonte, Pennsylvania, and his body was cremated. As of 2021, he was the last person to have been executed by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He remains the third of only three people to have been executed in Pennsylvania since the reassumption of the death penalty. His last meal, which we all know, this is my favorite part, learning what people's last meal is, which that sound, I don't mean it as sick as it's coming out. You, you understand what I mean. I find it the most, I don't know, it's just interesting to me, okay? Any guesses on what his last meal is? No? Okay, I'll let you know. His last meal was two cups of coffee and two slices of cheese pizza. He had no last words. That's not a bad last meal, pizza and coffee. Yeah, so that wraps up today's episode. Have you ever heard that? Like, I know first of all, little, little thing before I even say this, people around the world listen to this podcast. It's not shocking. Like I looked at the map of where people listen to us. That's, thank you so much. That's crazy. So if you're one of the people who I personally know and you live in my area, isn't that crazy that someone that lives so close to us did that? Someone in Philly. I, oh my God, I can't imagine. And I feel like I watched, because when I was doing the story, even though I never heard of him, when I was reading the like facts, I definitely watched the interview with one of those um, women who got freed. Like I definitely, some of it was so familiar when I was reading about it. So if I can find those interviews or anything, um, any interviews with him or the victims, I'll link it in the description because they were like, it's crazy that someone survived that, that torture. Oh, I could not imagine. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep after that. Oh, couldn't imagine. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Next week, it's the last week of October. It's so sad. So we're going to be doing a special Halloween edition episode. It's going to be another true crime case, but it's going to be Halloween themed. You'll see what it is when we get there. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you have any requests, let me know on the Over the Topics Instagram or my personal Instagram. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye, toppers. Bye.